The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you again for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. My prayer is that you will be strengthened by these readings. The insight in which Mr. Rushduni had is significant, not only then, but in today's day as well. But in no way should it replace your own studies in the Scriptures. And I do pray that you will take what you learn and apply it to every area of your life and thought. Doceticism and the Mandate for Dominion Chalcedon Position Paper, number 49 Heresies often disappear in church history to return as false orthodoxies. One such example is docetism. This concept, a form of Gnosticism, refused to accept the incarnation and union without confusion of the human and the divine in Jesus Christ. For the docetist, Jesus was a spiritual being, a kind of phantom who had only the appearance of flesh. By means of this doctrine in Neander's words, quote, the connection of Christ's appearance with nature and with history, unquote, was broken. Christ was, quote, real, unquote, only in that he was fully visible and present, but not as actual flesh and blood, but as pure spirit. Such a view meant, as Neander saw, the, quote, evaporation, unquote, of Christianity. We have in John a very clear insistence on a total separation from this view in its earliest forms. Quote, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Unquote. 1 John 4, 2-3 Docetism is thus on apostolic authority declared to be of Antichrist. It is anti-Christian to the core. In the epistle of Ignatius to the Smyrnaeans, we have an attack on the Docetists. Quote, 
they who would make nothing but a specter of Christ are themselves like specters, spectral men, unquote. Such a doctrine made a material and personal stand for the faith unnecessary. Quote, but if these things were done by our Lord only in appearance, then am I only in appearance bound? And why have I surrendered myself to death, to the fire, to the sword, to wild beast? Unquote. Tertullian also attacked the docetists, saying, quote, How is it that you make the half of Christ a lie? He was all truth. Unquote. Again, he said, quote, You are offended when the child is nourished and fondled in the uncleanness of its swaddling clothes. This reverence shown to nature you despise, and how were you born yourself? Christ at least loved man in this condition. For his sake he came down from above. For his sake he submitted to every sort of degradation, to death itself. In loving man, he loved even his birth, even his flesh, unquote. This, quote, reverence shown to nature, unquote, by our Lord, of which Tertullian wrote, was lacking in the docetist. For them, the world was divided between two alien and contradictory substances, spirit and matter, a Hellenic division. Salvation for docetism was essentially from materialism, from matter, into spirituality. For docetism, the goal of holiness was separation from material things, and their Christ thus could not be truly incarnate, because to be made flesh would make Jesus Christ sinful. For all forms of Gnosticism, the fall of man was essentially a fall into flesh, into matter or materialism, and hence salvation meant becoming spiritual. However, then as now, whenever men seek this false salvation, their sin increases. When men become, quote, spiritual, unquote, by seeking to forsake materiality and flesh, they fall into many material or physical sins. On all sides of the church front, charismatic and non-charismatic, holiness groups and, quote, mainline, unquote, churches, wherever people seek a, quote, spiritual, unquote, way of life as against a materially relevant one, they fall readily into fleshly sins. There is a reason for this. Salvation is not from flesh or matter, but from sin, a very different thing. God created all things, and he created all things, quote, very good, unquote, Genesis 1, 31. To blame what God created for man's fall is morally wrong. To seek salvation from God's creation is sin, and an indictment of God. Sin is not matter, nor is it spirit. Quote, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God, unquote. According to the Shorter Catechism, number 14, quote, sin, unquote, says 1 John 3, 14, quote, is the transgression of the law, unquote. Satan is a purely spiritual being and yet totally evil. His evil nature is not due to his spirituality, but to his moral choice. Adam was created of flesh and blood man. His fall was not due to his materiality, but to his moral decision, his desire to be his own God, determining what is good and evil for himself. Genesis 3, 5. In both cases, sin, not flesh nor spirit, was responsible for their fall. To see spirit as necessarily good is not scriptural, nor to see matter as necessarily bad. Both are God's creation. 
Sin is an ethical, not a metaphysical fact, a matter of moral choice, not of being either spiritual or material. Docetic and Gnostic thinking has become a part of the religious life of the church. People assume spirituality to be good, per se. 1 John 4, 2-3 tells us it can be demonic. People assume materiality to be bad, which it can be, but it can also be holy. It is sin which renders spirit or matter bad. It is sin, not an aspect of God's creation, which is bad. One consequence of docetic thinking in the church has been to undermine the mandate for dominion. Genesis 1, 26-28. Psalms 72, 8 tells us of Christ, quote, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth, unquote. Isaiah 64, 25 tells us that before the end of the world, men's longevity will be greatly extended. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 27 tells us that before the end of the world and Christ's second coming, all Christ's enemies shall be put under his feet, as well as, quote, all rule and all authority and power, unquote. We are also told that there shall be world peace. Quote, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more, unquote. Isaiah 2, 4. No man nor nation shall stand against the Lord. Quote, they shall be as nothing, and they that strive against thee shall perish, unquote. Isaiah 41, 11. In fact, quote, the nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly wasted, unquote. Isaiah 60, 12. Such verses cannot be, quote, spiritualized, unquote, away, as docetism seeks to do. Their meaning is too clear. The mandate for dominion is, first, required by the fact of creation. God, having made all things, governs all things and requires his covenant man to rule all things by God's law word. God did not create any part of the universe or earth to be ruled by his enemies. On the contrary, he gives his covenant law to his redeemed people as the instrument for dominion. Law is the key instrument for government. To be antinomian is to be against government by, for, and under God. Docetism wants a separation from matter, law, and government, and in so doing separates itself from the Lord. All forms of Gnosticism do this same thing from Valentinian to Karl Barth and the, quote, spiritual, unquote, evangelicals. The fall was the consequence of sin, of moral dereliction, and salvation is our restoration into moral responsibility, materially and spiritually. The law of God is the way of holiness, the instrument and means for exercising moral responsibility. The law of God is thus the way of dominion whereby redeemed men can subdue the earth and rule it under God. Second, the mandate for dominion is clearly set forth in the Incarnation. God the Son became incarnate. He took upon himself all the being of man. Had the purpose of his coming been to pull people out of a material world, he would not have been made flesh. He would have come as a docetic phantom. Jesus Christ is the last and great Adam. 1 Corinthians 15 45 through 47. The first Adam fell into sin and could not exercise dominion. 
The last Adam came to destroy the power of sin and death and to send forth his people to command all nations for him. Matthew 28, 18-20 The Incarnation tells us that the triune God is working to bring God's creation under God's total government, and hence God in the flesh enters time, history, and matter to redeem it. The Incarnation is a material fact. We cannot be Christian and deny the Incarnation. John says, quote, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. Unquote. 1 John 4, 15 We must affirm that the totally human Jesus is also totally the Son of God. Only those who make this confession are, quote, in God, unquote. John makes clear. Without the incarnation, there is no Christianity. Third, the atonement is an anti-docetic mandate for dominion. It is anti-docetic because it has to do with the satisfaction of God's law, and docetism is antinomian because law, God's law, is concerned with the government and dominion over our very material world. Government and law are forms of dominion, and there can be no dominion without government and law. The atonement tells us that God is the supreme governor and the only true lawmaker. It is the requirement of his law and the rule or government which requires atonement, or propitiation and satisfaction. This atonement does not have as its purpose the abandonment but of his law, but its restoration as our way of life. This atonement does not have as its purpose the abandonment of his law, but its restoration as our way of life. As a death sentence on sin, the law is a way of death to the unredeemed. When we die to the law as a death penalty, we are then alive in it as the way of life and justice, Romans 8, 4, and as the way of dominion. The atonement frees us from slavery to sin, John 8, 24, to make us more than conquerors in Christ, Romans 8, 37. And to be a conqueror is to exercise dominion. There is no dominion in docetism because there is no true atonement and no law. Docetic salvation is from matter, not sin. The redeemed in Christ know that the difference between holiness and sin in the realm of sexuality is faithfulness to the law of God. Quote, Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge, unquote. Hebrews 13, 4. The atonement and the life of faithfulness make the difference, not a docetic spirituality. Because of their false spirituality, docetists and Gnostics are very prone to sexual sins. They seek salvation from their materiality and in spiritual experiences rather than through Jesus Christ and his atoning blood. Fourth, the doctrine of the resurrection is a mandate for dominion. Our Lord conquered the power of sin and death over his new humanity. The Apostles' Creed declares that Jesus Christ, who, quote, was crucified, dead, and buried, rose again from the dead, unquote. It also sets forth as an article of faith, quote, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, unquote. It is our bodies which shall be resurrected because Christ is risen from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 12-20 Christ rose from the dead as our Adam. 
Quote, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 15, 21-22 Where Adam failed to exercise dominion, Genesis 1, 26-28, and his fallen heirs only worked out the implications of sin and death, we in Christ are required to exercise dominion over ourselves and the world. In the place of the outworkings of sin and death, we have the development in and through us of righteousness, of justice, and life. We are called to be the dominion people, and all things must be brought into a captivity to Christ. His dominion must be from sea to sea, beginning with us. Dennis Peacock recently reminded me of the fact that proletarian is a word having as its root prolis, children. The proletariat are the breeders of children whose function it is to breed for the state and to be the tools of the state, its children. The Christian is not called to be a proletarian, but Christ's dominion man. The modern state seeks to proletarianize man. We must make of a man a new creation in Christ by being the instruments of his word and spirit. The battle lines are now being drawn between proletarian men, the children of the state, and dominion men, the sons of God in Christ by the adoption of grace. In this battle, the docetist is irrelevant. He regards interest or activity in politics as materialistic and tainted, and the same is true of economics. He is content to allow the humanistic state schools to educate his children because he regards Christian schools as too materialistic in activity and his faith is purely, quote, spiritual, unquote, in its concerns. The docetist deserts Christ for his own spirituality and he seeks to bring others into his, quote, higher, unquote, and, quote, spiritual, unquote, way. The docetists are often kindly and well-meaning people they promote their antinomianism and anti-dominionism as the true gospel, which requires them to relegate most of the Bible to some meaningless category. The modern docetists do not say that Jesus did not come in the flesh. They have sophisticated the argument, as did all the heretics of the early church. For them, Christ came supposedly to make us, quote, spiritual, unquote whereas Scripture tells us that He came and died for us to make us righteous or just before God. John tells us that all such falsity is of Antichrist, 1 John 4, 1-3. It turns a man into a false prophet. But we have men and nations to conquer for Christ, who is the, quote, only potentate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, unquote, 1 Timothy six fifteen. He must reign in and through us until all his enemies are put under his feet and all rule and all authority and powers acknowledge and obey him. 1 Corinthians 15, 24-26 Only then shall the end come and the last enemy, death, be destroyed. Before then, the docetists, the apostles of irrelevancy, will all be gone. Incorporation Chalcedon Position Paper, number 50. One of history's most important doctrines is today widely subject to abuse, neglect, and attack. This is the concept of the corporation. In any truly strict definition of the term, no corporation existed outside of the biblical revelation nor apart from Scripture's doctrine 
of a people created by God's covenant. Some Roman developments had a resemblance to the corporation, but cannot be identified with it. The word, quote, corporation, unquote, tells us much. It is from the Latin and is related to the term common in medieval faith. Quote, de corpore et sanguini domini, unquote. Quote, the body and blood of the Lord, unquote. In its original sense, the corporation, which means a body which does not die with the death of its members, has reference to the body of Christ, his church. This corporation, Christ's body, has as its origin covenant Israel, the calling of twelve disciples to replace the twelve patriarchs of Israel, had as its purpose to set forth the continuity of the corporate covenant community. The church is the new Israel of God. It used that term, quote, Israel of God, unquote, Galatians 6.16, to distinguish itself from the Israel of blood. The church thus, as the original and true corporation, has an earthly as well as a supernatural life. It is here in history, but it is also, quote, the heavenly Jerusalem, unquote. It is, quote, an innumerable company of angels, unquote, and the, quote, general assembly and church of the firstborn, unquote. Hebrews 12, 22 through 23. Paul says that Christians are, quote, one body in Christ, unquote, Romans 12, 5. In example, a corporate entity in and of him. We are all, quote, baptized into one body, unquote, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 20, wherein there are, quote, many members, yet one body, unquote. The texts which stress this fact are too many to cite in so small a compass as this. The church saw itself from the beginning as, quote, corporation, unquote, a body whose life and continuity did not depend on the life of its members. It is amazing that there is so little to be found on the significance to society of the doctrine of the church as Christ corporation. It is one of history's most revolutionary doctrines, and it has influenced many areas of life and thought. A key sphere of influence has been, for better or worse, the state. One of the problems of the non-Christian world was long the lack of any concept of continuity. The office or person of a king might be sacred, but rule was personal. In example, non-institutional. Subordinate rulers swore loyalty not to a civil government, but to a man, a ruler. The death of that ruler dissolved the ties, and his successor had to regain loyalties through demonstrable power to compel it. The result was that civil authority was purely personal in most cases, and very erratic as a result. This was a problem Rome tried to solve, but not very successfully. With the rise of Christendom, this problem lingered. The Holy Roman Empire continued in the old pattern, and, as a result, alternated between great power and virtual non-existence as an effective force. Not surprisingly, the doctrine of the church as Christ's corporation began to influence society. It should be added that the church was not the only corporation set forth in Scripture. The family is another. When a man dies, the Bible tells us he is, quote, gathered unto his people, unquote, or his fathers, Genesis forty-nine thirty-three, or, with some analogous term, stresses the family's corporate unity. Naboth's refusal to sell the vineyard to Ahab was due to this corporate fact. 
It was the property of his father before him, 1 Kings 21.3, and of his descendants after him. This strong sense of the family as a corporate religious entity has been the reason for the survival of the Jews. With the rise of humanism, the Jewish family is now disintegrating. Within Christendom, many of the problems created by men and their false sense of dominion and women with their feminist rights movements have been due to a failure to recognize the corporate nature of the family in biblical law. That corporate nature and its relationship to the doctrine of the church is very forcefully set forth in Ephesians 5, 21-33. Ernest H. Kantorowitz, The King's Two Bodies, 1957, set forth the status use of this concept and its many perversions in the medieval and early modern developments of the doctrine. The crown became a corporation, hence, it could be said when a king died, quote, the king is dead, long live the king, unquote, because the monarchy did not die with the death of one monarch. The state indeed went so far as to see itself as the mystical body of Christ and as the true and central Christian corporation. The consequences of this and other perversions are very much with us and in well-developed forms. The fact that since Hegel, a pantheistic theology undergirds the doctrine of the state does not alter the fact that the modern state sees itself as the true church or kingdom under whom all things subsist. The state sees itself as God walking on earth and as the great corporation of which all men are members. The Bible tells us that there are two great bodies or corporations, with all other bodies as aspects of the one or the other. These two are the humanity body or corporation of the old or first Adam, and that of the new or last Adam, Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 45-50. The modern state sees itself as the supercorporation, embracing both. St. Augustine saw the two humanities as the kingdom or city of God in Christ or the city of man in the fallen Adam. The state without Christ is in the city of man and is no different in character than a band of robbers. It is an evil, criminal agency oppressing man. Augustine did not counsel revolt because he knew that the key to change is regeneration in Christ, not revolution. The influence of the concept or doctrine of incorporation or the corporation went beyond the state into the world of commerce. The business corporation echoes, whether or not it knows it, the biblical doctrine of the church. Two things may be said at this point. First, it goes without question that the doctrine of the corporation has in humanistic hands, been greatly abused and misused. However, this should not lead us into overlooking a second fact, namely that the concept of the corporation has given continuity to man's activities in one sphere after another. Medieval and modern institutions have a continuity and history unlike anything in the non-Christian world. What the corporation doctrine has enabled men to do is to transcend the limitations of their time and life span. Men can create and develop a business, a school, or an agency whose functions live beyond themselves. This has been a very revolutionary and biblical fact. The Bible tells us that man is earthbound and, because of his sin, will return to the earth. Quote, 
for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Unquote. Genesis 3.19 However, this is not the whole story. We are also told, quote, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them, unquote. Revelation 14.13 That a man's works can survive him on earth is obvious. We are told that they follow him beyond the grave. Such a faith gives a great confidence in both time and eternity. Men can work knowing that their, quote, labor is not in vain in the Lord, unquote. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. Granted that corporations are not necessarily good, nor necessarily bad. It still remains true that the concept of the corporation has been important in history by giving continuity to the works of men. Among other things, the original corporation, the church, has given a new meaning to time. Time is now time in terms of Christ, B.C. before Christ, or A.D. Anno Domini, the year of our Lord in Christ. Previously, time was commonly dated in terms of the accession of the current ruler. An example, in the first year of Mithridates, or the eighth year of Antiochus, and so on. There was no continuity, only an endless beginning and ending. Now all time is in Christ, and his body is the great corporation. The pattern gives continuity to all of life, so that human activities now have a lifespan beyond that of their founders. Moreover, all that the ungodly accumulate shall flow into God's kingdom, so that its continuity will prosper his people. Isaiah 61, 6, 54, 3, etc. The continuity serves Christ and us in Him. The development of corporations in Western history has been very important. Many Christian corporations were established during the medieval era to carry on specific biblical duties and to organize people for common action to meet a specific Christian need or function. Attempts at the status control were also common. In the reign of James I of England, that monarch held that corporations could only be created by the fiat of the state. This meant that neither a Christian calling nor vocation could create a corporation, but only the crown. In the United States, virtually total freedom existed for generations for all kinds of corporations. The incorporation of a church or Christian agency of any kind was simply a legal formality notifying the state of the existence of such a body and its immunity from status controls. In recent years, the statists have turned that notification into a form of licensure and control. The matter can be compared to filing a birth certificate. When the birth of Sarah Jones is recorded by her parents and doctor, permission for Sarah Jones to exist is definitely not requested. Rather, a fact is legally recorded. Similarly, in American law, religious trust, foundations, or trust did not apply for the right to exist, but recorded their certificate of birth, their incorporation. The current Internal Revenue Service doctrine is that the filing is a petition for the right to exist. This turns the historic position and the First Amendment upside down. It asserts for the federal government 
the, quote, right, unquote, to establish religion and to control the exercise thereof. As a result, a major conflict of church and state is underway. At the same time, many abuses of the concept of a church corporation prevail. Some organizations sell, quote, ordinations, unquote, as pastors and priests to enable men in the evasion of income taxes. This kind of abuse does not invalidate the integrity of a true church, nor is it a legitimate reason for the entrance of the state into the life of valid churches. Then, too, because of the intrusion of the federal and state governments into the sphere of church incorporation, some are advocating disincorporation by churches. Given the vulnerability of the church as an incorporated legal entity to status controls, we should not forget the total vulnerability with disincorporation. In some court cases, the results are proving to be especially disastrous. If our weapons against an enemy prove to be somewhat defective, does it make sense to throw away those weapons and to disarm ourselves? Not only should the church fight for the freedom of incorporated existence, but Christians need to establish a wide variety of Christian foundations to meet their wide-flung responsibilities in Christ. Educational foundations to further the promotion of biblical faith and knowledge are needed. Christian charitable trust to minister to the needs of the poor, prisoners, the sick, delinquents, and more are urgently needed. Hospitals are a product of Christian corporate activity to minister to human need. They were once all Christian. There is a need to reclaim this ministry which, in humanistic hands, has become increasingly a problem. Christian corporations or foundations were once the ministries in the spheres of health, education, and welfare, and there is a growing return to the responsibilities in these areas. These agencies use God's tax, the tithe, to exercise government in key spheres of life in the name of Christ. They are outside the sphere of status, taxation, and control because there are areas of Christ's kingdom and government. We have a weak doctrine of corporation today because we have a weak doctrine of the body of our Lord and of communion. If we limit the doctrine of corporation to the institutional church, we limit the scope of Christ's work in the world. To incorporate means to give body to something, we need to incorporate our faith into the total context of our world and to minister and govern in our various spheres in Christ's name and power. May 1984